0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Disastercast, the podcast for those who find accidents interesting, but would prefer that there weren't quite so many of them. My name is Drew Ray, and this is episode 35, called simply Independence. The idea of independence comes up a lot in safety, particularly when it comes to independent review. Independence is often actually a contract requirement or a process requirement for test, for review, and for certification. Independence comes in a lot of different flavours, though, and people asking for or offering independence are often a little vague about what they mean. Independence isn't always a good thing, either. Let's start by talking about why independence matters. There are four different ways of looking at this, The first one is political. Safety is intrinsically about politics, and it gets more political the more different organisations are involved. So one of the big questions is, how do you know who to trust? If you're buying a car, the people who know most about the car are probably the company who built it. But they're not exactly going to give you a disinterested opinion. They've got a vested interest in selling you the car, So they might not be totally forthright about the benefits and drawbacks of that particular vehicle. If you go to a car dealer who only sells one make of car, they're not exactly going to give you a straight answer either. So to make the decision about buying a car, you look for independent sources of information. People who understand cars but don't have any skin in the game. This works the other way too. If you're selling a car, then it's going to be more marketable if you can get independent people to say that it's a good car. An independent advice works the same way for safety. When you're receiving information about safety, it helps to have a second opinion telling you that you can trust that information. When you're giving safety information, it helps to have someone endorsing, backing up what you're saying. This gets really important if something actually goes wrong. It's much easier to argue that you acted reasonably if you can point to other people who agreed with you at the time that you were making the right choices. There'll certainly be plenty of people afterwards who are going to use hindsight to second-guess you, so get their opinions up front saying that what you're doing is the right thing. The second reason independence matters is psychological. It's very hard to critically review your own work because your brain, when you're reviewing, follows the same patterns that it used to produce the work in the first place. Of particular concern is confirmation bias, where we interpret evidence based on what we already believe, and inattentional blindness, where we fail to notice some really quite obvious and salient details just because we're not expecting them. Independence provides fresh eyes, different ways of thinking, and better opportunities to spot mistakes. The third way of looking at independence is simply to imagine humans as if they're mechanical components. One component by itself is a single point of failure. Two components builds in redundancy. More things have to go wrong for an accident to happen. Humans are high-performance components, but they're not reliable ones. Even the most competent workers have blind spots and momentary lapses. An independent review helps to protect against these mistakes. The final perspective comes from systems engineering. Safety work is mostly open loop. There's no feedback to know if you're doing it well or doing it poorly. And independent checking provides that feedback, letting you control your processes and improve your work. So all of that explains why independence might matter, but it doesn't clarify exactly what independence is. So let's take two people, Archie and Beth. Is Beth independent from Archie. The first question we could ask is who pays their salaries? If Archie pays Beth, or Beth pays Archie, or they're both paid by the same person, then they're not very independent. We could also look at their organisation structure. Who does Beth work for? Who does she report to? If Beth reports to Archie, or they both report to the same person, again, not very independent. We could consider the actual work, too. If Beth is reviewing Archie's work, then we want to know did she help at all with the original work? If Beth is partially marking her own work, that isn't very independent. We call this one task independence, or intellectual independence. And then finally, and a bit more subtly, where do Beth and Archie get their ideas from? If Archie and Beth went to the same schools and learnt from the same books and grew up in the same industry, they're likely to think the same way. Now, hopefully it's clear that none of these are yes-or-no black-white questions. There's a sliding scale along each dimension. So let's consider organisational independence. The least organisational independence is when Archie and Beth are actually the same person. Then, a bit more independent, they might be different people working for the same supervisor. Or working for different supervisors but in the same division. Or in different divisions but in the same company or in different companies, but companies who work closely together. And then we have maximum independence, when Archie and Beth's companies have never done business before and never will again. So, hopefully it's also clear that perfect independence is an illusion. You're never going to have two people who are totally, totally independent. So, consider financial independence. Everyone has to get paid from somewhere. If you've been hired to review a safety project, you need to worry not just about who's paying you this time, but where your income's going to come from in the future. Even employees of a totally independent regulator aren't really totally financially independent. They have salaries, they have performance targets, and they've got future ambitions and prospects. And perfect independence isn't really a desirable thing anyway. Independence comes at a price and the more independence, the higher the price. Some of this cost is purely financial. External staff, even from within the same company, are more expensive to use. There are contract overheads, travel expenses, and just time required to get up to speed. There's an information cost as well. The more independent you are, the less you know about the system, and the less you know about the technology being developed or used. If I'm designing a gas converter, and I want to avoid groupthink, I'll avoid using someone who's previously worked on the design. But I'll still want them to be an expert on gas converters. If I hire hire someone with heaps of intellectual independence, then they're going to know nothing about the typical hazards of gas converters and how to spot good and bad gas converter design. On top of these things, there's a relationship cost. If I ask someone from within my own company to review my design, I'm far more likely to share information with them. I'll tell them which parts of my own analysis I'm least certain about, and I'll be honest about the strengths and weaknesses of my decisions. To an outsider, though, a project is far more likely to be defensive, to present a united front. So an adversarial review is not necessarily a better, more insightful review. There are even times when independence is an actively bad thing. A good example of this is safety analysis in support of design. When you're in the process of designing a system, you don't want the safety engineer to be independent from the design team. Ideally, you want the design team to be doing their own safety analysis. To understand why this is so, just imagine what independence really means. I once had a government defence agency and no, I'm not going to tell you which government, proudly explaining how independent their safety analysis was. The design and the safety analysis had been conducted by totally different people with clear barriers preventing contamination of ideas. In other words, what they were claiming was that the design had no influence over the safety analysis, and the safety analysis had no influence over the design. That's right, the safety analysis documents actually described a totally different system to the one that had actually been built. That's what perfect independence buys you. During design, you want every change in the design to be reflected in the safety analysis. You want a quick natural response where any time the safety analysis looks like it might be finding a problem, the design evolves to take that problem away. The last thing you want is an arm's length, adversarial approach which puts in delays and psychological obstacles to making the design better. So that's where we don't want independence. Where do we need independence? At the other end of the life cycle, once the design has been mostly finalised, that's where we really do want independent checks. In the same way that programmers shouldn't be writing their own acceptance test cases, Final designs should be checked by independent safety analysis, otherwise it's a bit like marking your own homework. Independence is also needed when you've got teams designing components that are supposed to be independent. If you've got one processor performing a calculation, and another processor checking the calculation, they're more likely to contain similar mistakes if the teams designing them are sharing notes. Independence becomes more and more important as things become more and more subjective as well. A lot of safety work involves arguments and assumptions. Two big examples of this are safety cases and risk assessments, which lose most of their value if they're not independently checked. A risk assessment by itself is like one side of a court trial. It presents an argument that appears to lead to an inevitable conclusion. And it's only once you put an adversary in play that the points of weakness, dispute and doubt become obvious. So in practical terms, we need some independence, but not too much. And we need independence for some things, but not for other things. How do we manage it? Good safety-critical organisations build independence into their planning. They'll typically use local independence wherever possible, such as using one project to review another, and then they'll call in outside help for an overarching view of the whole process. This sort of independence can break down if you're not careful. I know of at least one case where the most talented engineer got promoted into his old team leader's job, so he was now the oversight person for the work he'd just performed. As the project moved into test phase, they needed a talented team leader to recover chaos in the test schedule, so this same guy got moved from design to test so he was now in charge of verifying the work that he'd supervised and that he'd also performed. Now, fortunately in this case, some individual ethics and organisational shuffling got things back on track. But it isn't actually that unusual for staff movements and staff shortages to compromise the best-laid plans for independence. One independence idea that you may have already come across is the idea of an ISA, or ISA. It stands for independent, safety, something, whether something could be advisor, authority, auditor, or assessor. It all comes down to exactly what questions are being asked. Typically an advisor is someone you call in to give you a second question on key strategic questions. They're there to help you by applying a special skill or giving a different point of view. A company might hire an independent advisor, for example, to help them run a hazard identification workshop. The outsider has organisational independence, so they can help communication between different stakeholders. Independent facilitation also adds something to the legitimacy and the weight of the findings. An independent authority, on the other hand, makes judgments about particular decisions. Often they'll make judgment about specific technical solutions as well. Financial independence here is particularly important. An independent authority is like a thumb on the balance between safety and other considerations. An independent auditor is primarily concerned with questions of compliance. Have particular standards or particular regulations been followed? And then an assessor is somewhere between an auditor and an authority. They aren't just interested in compliance with the letter of the standards but also in the acceptability of the processes and the solutions. Um, This might be a bit clearer if we take an example like a risk assessment. Now, if you didn't do a risk assessment yourself, someone else has done the risk assessment, there are a bunch of questions you might want answered about that risk assessment. To start with, you might just want to be sure that the risk assessment had actually happened. So that's the sort of question an auditor can answer for you checking the paper trail to see that work has actually been done. But what if instead you want to know whether the risk assessment has been performed in compliance with a particular standard? That's also an audit question, but it gets a bit more technical. Probably, though, what you really want to know is, is this a good risk assessment? We're moving here on to assessor territory. If you want to know if the risk assessment has missed anything or made any mistakes... That's an assessor-type question. Or maybe you want to know something far more fundamental. Was a risk assessment actually the right thing to do here? Does it add anything to safety? All of those are legitimate questions that you might want to ask, but they all lead to very different types of review. And that's one of the concerns we get to when we ask for independence, is exactly what are we asking the independent person to do for us? Remember our original concerns about why we wanted independence. We wanted to build trust and confidence, to add checks and balances, to protect against human cognitive bias, and to create a feedback loop. It's very easy to create false confidence of all these types, simply by asking for the wrong sort of review. Look, my new hovercar is safe because I've had the world experts in hovercars review my safety analysis. But what did I actually ask them to do? What were their terms of reference? Did I ever actually ask them, is the hover car safe? Or did I ask them to, if my safety comp- program complied with ISO 9000? Same experts, same project, different question. Having talked about independence and the role of ICES. I think it's inevitable that it's an accident this episode. We talk about the Nimrod XV-230. This is a UK military aircraft crash in Afghanistan in 2006. It was particularly controversial because the aircraft had just been the subject of a safety case. And then when it crashed there was a coroner's report that claimed that the design was never airworthy. It's a difficult accident to talk about. Because the public documentation of the accident, in particular the report of the Haddon Cave Inquiry, casts blame both on organisations and on named individuals. The amount of blame and legal liability has made it hard then for those organisations to talk about it, and in particular for them to openly talk about their own failings and to make things better. Instead, they've got this public front where they have to contest some of the findings. I find it hard to talk about myself because I actually know a lot of individuals within all three organisations. Some of them even listen to this podcast. So tricky to talk about, but I think important to talk about. The context for the whole episode comes from the UK Ministry of Defence, the MOD, operating equipment with very long service lives. Now, there's nothing strange or unusual about this. A lot of military equipment all around the world is essentially updated World War II technology. And in more than a few cases, it's actually surplus World War II stock. This really long service life means three things. The first is that the equipment gets physically old. It starts to experience more problems simply through old age. The second is the safety standards which apply to modern equipment simply didn't apply at the time the equipment was designed. And thirdly, even the safety analysis that was done is now out of date. It's been superseded by in-service experience, and by changes to the equipment over time and the way it's used. Now all of this is a problem, but it's not a problem the MOD is unaware of. They were quite conscious of the fact that they were operating very old equipment, with virtually no current safety assurance, alongside new equipment, where there were very rigorous standards for the safety analysis. And in particular, there was a need for safety cases for all of the new equipment. And most of the rules are written assuming that you're buying something new. So MOD guidance and instructions had very clear requirements for procuring aircraft. When you're buying an aircraft, it needs a safety case. For legacy aircraft, things were a lot less clear. It was recognised that the entire process for a new aircraft couldn't just be done retrospectively. And on the other hand, the legacy aircraft had a lot of in-service data, which, if you've got good in-service data, you should be using it instead of predictive analysis anyway. So it makes sense that if you're building an argument for the safety of in-service equipment, then you've got to be pragmatic. You're going to use a balance of evidence and of new analysis. The MOD went a bit too far, though, on the pragmatism side, and they introduced this idea of an implicit safety case, which was kind of an innocent until proven guilty, or safe so long as there isn't sufficient evidence to the contrary. This kind of turns the notion of safety analysis on its head. Instead of trying to find out whether the aircraft was safe, the default was to assume it was safe, and to perform analysis to support that assumption, instead of to test that assumption. So in February 2002, a safety management plan for the Nimrod was produced. The executive summary for this plan contained the exact words, There is a high level of corporate confidence in the safety of the Nimrod aircraft. However, the lack of structured evidence to support this confidence clearly requires rectifying in order to meet forthcoming legislation and to achieve compliance. In other words, there was both a plan and an intent to produce evidence to support what everyone already was sure they knew, which was that this was a perfectly safe aircraft. They were going to, according to this plan, appoint an independent safety assessor to provide assurance for the safety case work. As well as the independent safety assessor, there was going to be someone within the MOD, but outside of the immediate working group, who would act as safety advisor. On top of this, there was going to be an independent audit process, again within the MOD, but external to the immediate working group. When they actually appointed a safety manager, though, to perform the project, The role of safety advisor and safety manager got merged. So the first level of independence got taken away. They moved a check and balance from outside to inside. The next thing that happened is even though the safety case was owned by the Nimrod integrated product team within the MOD, they contracted work on the safety case out to BAE Systems. That made sense because BAE Systems were actually the design authority for the aircraft. They knew most about it. This is one of those cases where you don't want independence. You want someone who genuinely knows the product looking at its safety. BAE Systems were specifically asked to perform zonal inspections, which were a type of hazard identification. They were then going to analyse these hazards and look at whether they were sufficiently mitigated. Kinetic another company, a consultancy, were appointed as independent advisors. Now, we start to get into what broke down in this process. The analysis work performed by BAE Systems was described by the Hadden Cave report afterwards as suffering from planning, management, execution, resource, time, and attitude problems. It was also described as containing numerous systemic errors of fact, analysis, and risk categorization. Also described as a missed opportunity to prevent the eventual Nimrod accident. Now, that's pretty harsh criticism, and BAE systems don't fully accept what Haddon Cave said about the work they did. My own experience suggests that accusations of planning, management, execution, resource, time, and attitude problems probably actually applies to a majority of safety work. And it's rather rare to find a risk assessment where you couldn't say that it doesn't contain numerous systemic errors of fact, analysis, and risk categorization. And all of that's not actually the point. What matters is that BAE Systems claimed that they had fulfilled their obligations to do this safety work. And the MOD accepted the delivered work. So an organisation that had started off with an independent advisor, an independent assessor, and an independent audit process, three separate protections, accepted a safety analysis where many of the potentially catastrophic hazards had not finished being analysed. How did this happen? The auditors, at least, can be explained fairly easily. They were simply looking at the process, not at the products. No one ever asked them, is this a good safety analysis? Overall, the correct process steps were being taken. The independent advisor suffered from no longer being independent. Essentially, someone separate was merged so there was no separate person within the MOD casting an eye over the quality of what was happening. The independent assessors need a bit more explanation. Kinetic's role in this whole process was never formally defined. They were appointed because ISIS are supposed to be appointed for this sort of thing. But neither the MOD nor BAE Systems seems to have wanted or trusted Kinetic's advice. And their Statements and reports really seem to have had that weight as advice, not as independent assessment. One of the main causes for this hostile relationship was a lack of financial independence. Kinetic were originally part of the MOD. They were spun off to form a consulting firm, and so a lot of their business came from providing consulting services back to the MOD. Any time they criticised safety work, or suggested that more analysis was needed, they were viewed as touting for business. Now, whether this accusation is true or not is, again, beside the point. Independent assessors are appointed to give a trusted second opinion. If you don't trust the second opinion, in fact, if you trust it less than you trust the first opinion, then what's the point of paying for it in the first place? It's like having your doctor recommend medication, then asking for the second opinion from the sales rep of a rival drug company. You're paying for extra advice that you're only going to accept if it matches the original advice anyway. Now, that's on the MOD side. Within BAE Systems, there was also a supposed internal independent review of the robustness of the safety case being prepared. But as it later came out, the person who performed this review wasn't asked to do a robust view. They were asked to cast an eye over a few of the documents being prepared. So the end result of all of this is that BAE Systems delivered a safety case to the MOD with a large number of hazards marked as open or unclassified. And this work was signed off both by the MOD and by Kinetic So what we have is a large number of failures where independent review was intended and was in fact really needed by a good safety process, but didn't in fact happen. In some cases, this was because the exact role or terms of reference of the review were never made clear. No one was sure who was supposed to be reviewing what and for what, what questions were they meant to be answering. In other cases, the independence broke down because relationships changed, or there was actually a breakdown in the politics of the relationships. The final problem with this whole process came from a situation where there was actually no independence at all. The safety case had been submitted to the MOD with a large number of open and unclassified hazards. So that's a problem, but they're still open and unclassified. What then happened was these were sentenced by the project manager without any peer review or oversight. So lots of supposed independence built up around the external relationships that broke down, but internal to the MOD, no independence at all. And buried within these incorrectly sentenced hazards were all of the possible causes of the disaster. The Nimrod was originally a variant of the De Havilland Comet that we've talked about before, and it entered military service in 1969. Throughout its life it underwent a number of modifications, including the fitting of cross-feed hot air ducts, the fitting of air conditioning packs, and an air-to-air refuelling capability. During this time as well, original parts became obsolete, suppliers disappeared, and so components got replaced with others with different properties. On 2nd of September 2006, in the sky near Kandahar, Afghanistan, Nimrod XV-230 suffered a fuel leak. It wasn't the first fuel leak by any means, which made it a bit hard to narrow down the exact cause. It may have been related to rubber seals which weren't properly rated for aircraft use, but it was more probably a design flaw rate related to the retrofitted air-to-air refuelling system. There was ignition. It may have been the air conditioning packs. More probably, it was the poorly designed cross-feed hot air. There was a fire, a crash, and 14 service personnel died. The insuring inquiries, ironically, were probably just a bit too independent to be fully effective. A lot of the findings were viewed as an outsider Passing judgment without really understanding what things had been like. And so these outside views were harder for the companies involved to take on board. That's it for this episode of Disastercast. I usually try to avoid dealing with very recent accidents, because facts and understanding tend to mature with distance. Nimrod XV230 is still actually a bit raw for some people, particularly as a result of a report which named names and placed blames. And a number of these people are still in the industry. I do think the lessons about independence and about review aren't things under dispute, though, and worth re-emphasising. If you're happy or unhappy with the way I've treated this accident, please do leave comments or even just private feedback at disastercast.co.uk. You can also find show notes, transcripts, and links to iTunes and Stitcher. As a new feature, I'm going to try finishing each episode by mentioning my current reading list. As part of a project for a corporate client, I've done a ton of reading in the last few weeks about safety measurement. Leading indicators, lagging indicators, measuring risk, measuring safety improvement, and understanding just how people think safety management works in a measurable way. Once you start thinking about measuring safety activities, it really forces you to properly think about why you're doing each activity. I particularly recommend Andrew Hopkins' 2009 paper, Thinking About Process Safety Indicators. I've also recently finished reading Renée Amalberti's new book, Navigating Safety, Necessary Compromises and Trade-Offs. As a textbook, it's a little uneven, particularly the final chapters which seem almost unfinished but it's a really good synthesis of several recent themes in safety research, and it provides some genuinely novel and genuinely challenging ideas as well. So I recommend it not as a comprehensive text, but as something really thought-provoking. In terms of accidents, I've begun to read through the Volucas report on the issues at General Motors. You may have already seen the PowerPoint slide pack making the rounds about words that were discouraged from internal use at GM. If your company has a policy discouraging staff from using words such as defect, safety, dangerous or critical, you've got a serious culture problem. If additionally you feel the need to go out of your way to tell staff to stop using words like Kevorkian-esque, death trap, grenade-like and widow-maker, then maybe, just maybe, there's a message from your staff that needs to be heard. I'm also still working through some background reading on the BP Texas City explosion in 2005 and the Moira Number no. 2 mine disaster. These will all probably eventually crop up in Disastercast episodes, but if you have any special requests, let me know and I'll prioritise accordingly. If you're listening to this near the time of release, I'll be speaking at Teesside Skeptics in the Pub on July 3rd. It's my new talk called Accident Tales. If you're in the area, I hope to see you there, Otherwise, for the rest of you, keep safe.